Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. Hey everyone, I'm Rachel Tipgraff, the founder and CEO of Micmac. And I'm Sarah Hopstetter, president of Profitero. Welcome, Welcome to, to our, our podcast, Brave, Brave Commerce. So another report has come out recently from Kantar saying that ad spend in the first part of 2020 is down 19% year over year in the U.S., What's interesting is that uh, Procter & Gamble, who remains to be one of my favorite clients, uh, still holds its place as the top ad spender in the United States. But the rest of the list, when you look at it, looks quite different from years before. You see names like Amazon, Facebook, LendingTree, Wayfair, Grubhub, and insurance companies really dominate that list. You know, what still baffles me, Sarah, is that there are so many studies that continue to come out during the pandemic that explained to brands why it's so important to keep spending during crisis and how the brands that do that are the ones that stand the test of time. Yeah, it's amazing how conventional wisdom goes out the door when people get scared. <laughs> and from an e-commerce lens, the moment you stop spending, you basically become invisible. You get bumped off of the search results, you lose market share, and then you're letting private label creep in at a moment that we're about to hit some economic pain. Yeah, I mean, that added dynamic of retailer media in the general sense of ad spending is interesting because one of the things that we saw in the beginning of the pandemic, so this is like March, April, was that retailers literally couldn't handle the amount of consumer demand. And certain items from a consumer product standpoint were deemed necessary over others. And they were literally telling brand manufacturers, you have to stop spending you have to stop sending traffic to us. And as you know, what you just said, like when you tell a brand to stop spending, it has detrimental impacts on the long-term placement that they have within these e-com environments. Yeah, it's it's very hard to flip the switch on and off, especially when there is demand for products. And by the way, what people deem essential during a pandemic, it's not like that's got a lot of uh, benchmarking to begin with. So what I may deem essential and what you may deem essential are very different, which is why I think that essential thing didn't really last that long. But when we spoke with, with Gail Herwood, the CMO of Kellogg's, what I found interesting is how she's trying to navigate that balance of building brand equity while driving online sales during this time and, and with her cross-functional team, whether that's creative, media planning, 
managing agencies, and I would say certainly as a parent of, of two children and a lover of breakfast overall, I, I believe cereal and, and Eggos should be essential. I, I would totally agree. Well, with that, let's bring Gail Harwood onto the show. Today, we're spending the morning with Gail Harwood, Chief Marketing Officer of Kellogg North America. And there's something that readers may not know, and Gail, you may not even know either, which is the way that I met Rachel was through you. When we had dinner together back in October, November, something like that, I sat in between you and Rachel. And if I hadn't, first of all, we wouldn't all be here today. And Rachel and I would not have had the opportunity to kick off a very special friendship that we've really developed over the past months. So thank you, Gail. It's such a treat to have you as one of our first guests because without you, we wouldn't be here. Wow. I love that. When we had dinner together, I was picking your brain about e-commerce and because I was thinking about getting into the space and you were incredibly helpful in in guiding me and understanding how big brands and especially multi-brand CPGs navigate areas like e-commerce. And of course, this was all pre-COVID, but let's back up a little bit. The name of the game here at Brave Commerce is about being brave. You have made some pretty brave moves in your career, especially joining a company in Battle Creek, Michigan, when you live in New York. What prompted that change? You know, it's interesting. I had been in a digital strategy role and e-commerce role at Johnson & Johnson Consumer Healthcare. And how I got there was probably another brave change in my career because I started in the media business. But um, what, what brought me to Battle Creek, Michigan and to Kellogg was really the vision of leading uh, an integrated marketing organization where digital e-commerce and all marketing, brand marketing were one. And I was really excited by that. And, and while other companies profess to be moving in that direction, Kellogg was actually uh, executing it. And for me, that was exciting because it wasn't just words on paper there were teams reorganized to bring that vision to life. And it's still hard to do. But um, the idea that as a company, we were so committed, Kellogg was so committed to that omni-channel vision so early, this was three and a half years ago, that they reorganized marketing to make it happen was um, the reason I decided to commute weekly to Battle Creek, Michigan from my home in New York. Um, In many ways, you were adjusting to the new ways of working well before us because so much of your work probably was remote from your team. Since COVID's hit, how has the role of the CMO and your role specifically evolved? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you've you always been um, the, the chief vision setter in marketing, and I, I, I don't know that that's changed. I think um, as a person, I was sort of physiologically set up to work remotely or to work in an agile environment. I've spent my whole career, I was in media, as I mentioned before, um, learning to adapt to things very quickly. And I think what I was able to do was help the teams uh, build that cadence and that muscle during COVID. So we were all in the same boat and we, we, you know, had no choice but to work differently. But um, what I tried to do was set up Um, kind of process, rigor, and structure around making that easy for people to do. And so um, it was as much about kind of the cultural change as it was about the work itself. So getting people comfortable. For example, when we do meetings, we ask people to turn on their video. So 
um, you know, most meetings you can do with an avatar or whatever, but we ask people to turn on their video. So there is that semblance of you're still connecting with somebody. So that that's been part of the change. And I think allowing people to work differently has been a requirement. Um, and, you know, we have a very flexible sort of approach to that. I know last time we talked, Gail, you were sharing creative work. That feels like that's evolved in a remote world. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more sure. the rigor you put around the creative process. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that quickly happened to us and to other companies was the reality that the creative work we had been ready to put into market was either uh, not relevant anymore because it was around uh, experiences in sports that were were put on hold or, or canceled outright or entertainment, um, live events, et cetera. And so what we had to do was reimagine very quickly if we wanted to be present in market for consumers, what we were putting into market, not only what the ideas were, but how we got that work to market. So working really collaboratively with our agencies, with Leo Burnett, with Gray, with Haygarth, um, with Captura, what we did was we put in a whole set of new processes. One of the things we did that's been quite successful was daily idea meetings. So, um, at a CPG, you don't necessarily have content or creative meetings every single day to put work in marketplace. But in COVID, you had no choice because the world changed so rapidly, so quickly, and frankly, is still changing. You had to um, be agile about your ideas and not precious about them. So we did something called 5 and 15. And every day at 5 o'clock, we had our agency present creative ideas. And the other cool thing about that was, I think, Teams weren't always sure how to put those how to put those ideas in market. So I asked the team, the creative team, to organize ideas by things that could be done in a day, in a week, in a couple of weeks. So all of a sudden, the time to market became the organizing principle for ideas. So here are ideas we can do tomorrow. We can literally put these ideas in market tomorrow, and that was very effective because it helped our marketing teams understand how quickly they could literally adapt these ideas because, you know, not all of them are experts in content production. So they weren't necessarily clear that an idea was actually very simple to put in market versus some that something that was more complicated. So that, that was kind of one of the things we've done and, and that's stuck. We've also sort of, um, you know, systematically rethought our production and content processes. We're much more open to working with, um, our third-party external partners, whether it be our media partners or others, to to get content done in a quick and agile way. So talking about evolutionary work versus revolutionary work, when, when you and I first started working together at Kellogg, that was a few years ago when I was still at 360i, we launched a few products actually together first on e-commerce versus the retail experience first and then bringing it online. What are some of the learnings from those early experiences and how, how have you evolved the whole idea of just where and how to launch new products? Well, I think, you know, um, we, we wanted to learn from a lot of the DTC brands that were launching and really sort of think about how to, how to put things in front of people in different ways. At the time, um, sampling and experiential was really important to the product um, that we were uh, launching, which was Joy Bowl. And we wanted to make sure that we put the emphasis, much like our um, 
RX Bar launched their company, you know, going into CrossFit gyms and really sampling the product with true enthusiasts. We wanted to do the same kind of thing with Joyable and then make it easy for people to to, to purchase on the spot. And that was through e-commerce. So we built the plans from this idea that food and mouth and experience would be the first thing we wanted rather than the idea itself. And then we, we, we went from there. And by, by virtue of, of starting there, we were, we were building more slowly, but building with e-commerce as, as front and center. And it's been interesting because in the COVID environment, the sampling piece has been obviously something that's been put on hold because we're not doing in-person sampling anymore and and retailers are really not doing sampling so we've had to rethink how how that team is in market and they've been using a lot more uh or or doing even more in social channels to get in front of people yeah i mean the same for the alcohol industry struggling with how do you introduce new products in a world where it's much more difficult to sample you know, you, you mentioned earlier that not everyone in your team was familiar with content production and you facilitating those Thursday meetings uh, at five was a great way to help them. I'm wondering if you can say the same for e-commerce, you know, especially with the shift in the customer journey uh, over the last several months within grocery towards e-com, how have you been upskilling your team in this discipline? So, uh, I mean, I think this is an example of um, the marketplace evolved very quickly and we we had no choice but to evolve so there wasn't any um, pushback there or um, we very quickly saw our products become fast sellers in e-commerce even even more accelerated perhaps than general market and so um, you know they're shelf stable products um, they're family favorites they're nutritious so um, they move very quickly. And so it, it really just accelerated what the journey we had been on before, which, which is to build this omni-channel consumer experience. So I think the, the thing that drew me to Kellogg, you asked, why did I come to Kellogg? It's because I want to bring consumer experiences to life that reflect consumer reality. And consumer reality is not bifurcated by departments like, you know, I have an e-commerce team. I have a shopper team. I have a you know brand marketing team. I have a digital marketing team. They so so what it's done is helped us even further, given us absolutely no reason other than to integrate that consumer experience um, and understand the path to purchase and make sure that we were basically available wherever our consumers wanted us to be. And we saw retailers you know picking up speed, you know whether it be Walmart or Kroger or Target, making sure that this is happening as well. So. So thinking about that, being where consumers want to be, we were talking about Joyable as an on-the-go. Breakfast has changed a lot since COVID hit. How does that change the way you guys have been thinking about how to introduce breakfast? You have such a breadth of breakfast-related products, except for me, who sometimes eats Pringles for breakfast, just saying. (laughs) I I mean... One of the things um, that we're finding is, you know, as as families are rediscovering and not on the go as much or, or, you know, um, frankly, at home uh, and particularly when things were uh, more in the in the shelter in place kind of era of covid, um, you know, families were eating breakfast at home because they had to. There was no other place to have breakfast. And so, um, you know, you saw our product 
growth accelerate. And one of the things we've been doing was just to have uh, remind people about that ritual of having breakfast at home. And we, we don't believe that that's, um, you know, going to dissipate anytime soon, partially because even schools are not fully reopened, like schedules are so disrupted, work is so disrupted that um, even if you could leave the home, you're probably not leaving the home at five days a week um, the way you were in the past to go to school or to go to work. It's, it's, it's these bifurcated schedules. So, you know, we've been really focused on ensuring people remember how much fun they can have with breakfast, with cereal, with the foods that we make. So whether it's family activities, with Rice Krispie treats or, you know, making cooking or, you know, sort of challenges and puzzles and fun and uh, with our cereals, but just making sure to remember that it's not only about food and mouth, but it's about that collective experience you can have as a family, mashups, whatever it may be. Um, you know, Gail, you're in such a unique position to see the entire North American market, but I'm sure also global market, you know, given your role at Kellogg's. If you had money right now to invest in e-commerce, where the future is heading, where would you put your dollars? So, I mean, for me, I look at um, how, how, do we, how do we bring physical and virtual retail closer together? So I think there's, you know, right now and, and you know, for the past month, it's just been survival e-commerce. It's like, where can I find the thing I want? And I'll go anywhere to get it, whether that be, um, you know, Clorox wipes or cereal or whatever it is I need. I just want it when I want it. I think one of the things that I'm excited about is um, there's no longer a question of in grocery anyway, if e-commerce, when e-commerce, it's happened. Um, that change has happened. I would love to bring a more experiential experience to uh, shopping. So the joy of shopping, I'm somebody who loves to actually go to a grocery store because I just love the product discovery. I love the sights, the sounds, the smells. I just do like it. Um, obviously, during COVID, it's not been very much fun. But how do I start to think about that experience? I've been thinking about it for years and really upscale and, and, and sort of not upscale, but enhance the experience of, of online shopping. So whether that's with virtual demonstration. I mean, you see a little of this all over the place, but it's just not very joyful. It's very transactional. And I'd love to make online shopping, particularly for groceries, but also for other categories, fashion, more experiential. And um, I, I would invest in whether it be technology or experiences that do that. I think people are reluctant to spend money on those things because they're not necessarily performance drivers in the purest sense. It's the old, you know, why do you do a demo at all? You know, it's not always a click to purchase in that moment. And I think because e-commerce is so obviously measured on performance conversion in the moment, it's taken the kind of, it's made it very transactional and not very joyous. So hopefully, um, you know, I'd like to bring joy back to commerce. Hey, that's that. Admission that, that definitely sounds great. Bringing joy back to commerce. You know, when, when my kids were really little, going to the supermarket without them was my joy. Yeah, <laughs> that was like my that was my biggest escape. Like that and being able to take a shower. The what you're talking about though is is a really interesting point. The intersection of of functional and emotional, and e-commerce shopping very much is uh, functional because sometimes you actually already have to know what you're looking for 
when you when you start that journey and the idea of brand discovery that isn't necessarily inherent to the user experience which is why i'm you know as a as a former brand marketer but also now an e-commerce data person i try to strike that balance of how do you balance the importance of keeping your brand equity strong so that people remember your brand and think to look for your brand and then are looking for your brand making sure that it's discoverable in the way that reminds you that says, yes, I really do need to add frosted flakes to my shopping list. Although my son frequently reminds me that I have to add frosted flakes to my shopping list. The, by the way, my, the cereal with two teenagers in the house. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and past midnight as well. I'll, we'll, I will wake up and find cereal bowls in my sink frequently. And uh, since my daughter moved into her, her apartment, She's now giving me like the, we didn't buy enough bowls story. It's the perfect food for any moment of the day. <laughs> I said business opportunity. <laughs> we've run out of spoons during COVID. I don't know where all the spoons go, but we've, we've had a spoon shortage. But you know what, Sarah, you, you brought up something really interesting about um, the data piece. And, and that's the other thing. When we talk about, I, I'm really a big believer. I used to think, oh, if only we could get the technology, the rest would take care of itself. And one of the big challenges right now with commerce um, and that omni-channel view of the consumer, and I'm very committed to this idea that we need to know our consumers better, their on and offline purchasing behaviors and how those are brought together. I, I do think that there needs to be more data science around the algorithms that make you know, make up the underpinning of the, you know, e-commerce marketing technology stack. Because what I see is what's possible. I know what's possible, but yet I don't see that manifesting itself in a beautiful consumer experience. I have so few, either even just pure online, but online to offline experiences that, that reflect the true power of what all this technology can do. So it isn't necessarily about investing in more technology. It's in the bridges and the connection and the behaviors, the behavioral science that tunes these algorithms and that brings the pieces together that I really would like to see focused on. Um, and it's sort of, it's, it's always perplexing to me that it, it, I don't see anybody getting it right. And it, that includes people that have every single piece of data an well, airline that knows exactly when I'm flying, when my flight is delayed, like almost sort of simplistic use cases to really complex. It's, it's funny. Um, I don't know if you guys listen to the daily New York times podcast. I do. So did you listen to the one with Jack Dorsey? Uh, the other yes, week? I did. Right. And so it's, it's really touching upon what you're saying. Obviously they were talking about it on more of a mass communication platform channel, but behavioral science, game theorists, transparency. I loved that. Yeah. So for those that didn't hear the podcast, Jack Dorsey said that probably when he was launching Twitter or inventing Twitter, that they probably should have hired more game theorists and behavioral scientists to really think through the implications of of how the platform was unfolding. And I I couldn't agree more. And I'm really excited about that space. So it's it's less about the it's it's the application of the technology rather than the technology itself. And I, I'm really excited for that frontier because we have no place to go but up as far as I'm concerned. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that though, because like I, I feel like you're you're touching on something that I didn't really connect the dots on previously, but you know, you you've you've told me multiple times you started your your career in content. 
and content was really big. And you talk about like, you know, 20 years ago, early in digital content, it was very transactional as well. Remember the ads from like 2000? Yeah. Clickbait. Clickbait. Exactly. Click the bunny, win an iPod. Like there were, it was just so (laughs) incredibly transactional. And that is a lot of what e-commerce is today. And yet over time, the combination of consumer adoption and marketer creativity got us to a point where you were able to build a human connection where it wasn't so robotic. And that that's a great challenge for all of us, whether you're marketer side, whether you're partner side, to say, what are the things that we can do to make the experience richer in the same way that you're talking about? And whether that's game theory or whether that's just creativity in general, moving from that transactional first generation digital advertising to what it is today, which is advertising, (laughs) we can do the same thing on commerce. In the same way that like shopper marketing used to be coupons and then it got more creative. Like we don't, we just need to invent the next generation of that. And I feel like we've had years of acceleration in the past few months. So we better take advantage of it. And, and the first people will win. I think there's been a real, I go back to this bifurcation of commerce and marketing have been almost two separate activities. And one is performance driven and one is equity driven. And really what I'm excited about is where they come together. And I'm not in any way minimizing performance marketing or equity uh, and brand building. But to me, the sweet spot is that mushy middle where nobody's really defined how those pieces come together. And while we certainly haven't figured it all out at Kellogg, I'm excited to be part of the Uh, you know, driving that integration so that we can understand when is it a transaction and when is it, um, you know, more of your heart and your, you know, the empathy piece of it. So, and there, you know, there's a lot of, it's what keeps me interested in this space for so many years because it's not solved um, and it's not as simple as it seems. So if we do only if we only measure success in e-commerce by conversion, which I mean is going to be blasphemy. If you are a performance marketer and you say, well, we're going to look at other things. I mean, people will think you're insane. You know, what are you talking about? But I think particularly for companies that don't have massive DTC presence, I mean, our whole business is happening offline. So it's merging online now, but it's the majority of it is offline. So we can't simply measure performance KPIs as the be all and all. They're they're diagnostic, they're important, but they can't be everything in our business. You know, you remind me of something that I experienced when I was at Gap. You know, when we invested in TV, mobile, social, and social was really performance, we saw 1.5x lift in ROAS, which was sort of the business case. You have to invest in building brand and driving performance all at once. And, you know, during COVID, Gail, you've been in a category where products have been out of stock. And I feel like so many marketers have now had to become experts in supply chain. Have you been seeing interesting nuances in your business or the category at large around what happens when inventory is out of stock and consumer loyalty? Um, I, I can't say that I, I have a, a sort of um, kind of uh, fact-based kind of um, you know, set of things I've seen, because it's, it's really emerging. I I think what it's opened our eyes to is um, a portfolio approach to marketing, because when, you know, the way brand marketing and the way marketing is set up in big CPG, 
you have brand, you have SKU, you have variant, um, and you know you might have separate people marketing different pieces of a brand. Now we're looking much more as a portfolio about how do we serve the consumer's need when something is out of stock within our portfolio because better they shop with us than shop with a competitor or go to private label. So I think it's about being smarter about so-called substitutions that we're seeing. I, there's not enough longitudinal data to really sort of say like, oh, well, I've seen big changes in loyalty or anything like that, because it's just, it's, it's all happening in real time. But we, what we are doing as an organization is looking more across our portfolio and thinking about how we can serve our consumers need across the portfolio. Mm-hmm. And with that portfolio approach, does that shift how you guys do budgets? No, <laughs> it hasn't. Um, it, it hasn't. So uh, what it's done, though, and we're, we, we've got some great um, tentpole sort of shop or promotions. Right now, we're, we're doing a big uh, back-to-school promotion that is a, an incredible offer. One thing we know is you want to add value to people's lives. And the offer is uh, buy a box, get a book. And so we partnered with Penguin Random House. We know that um, school is wherever you make it these days. There are a lot of families that can't afford books at all, and they don't have access to libraries or schools. So this ability to be able to convert uh, a box of our products into an actual book, um, we're seeing redemptions go through the roof. And we really believe, and this is a program we've run for a number of years, but for the first time ever, we put national TV around it because we wanted to make sure consumers understood its value and what um, benefits it brought. And we're seeing that happen. So while the budgets haven't shifted, we are seeing a lot more traction with some of these portfolio approaches. I love that. One more element around the humanity of it all. Gail, you're not just a CMO, you are a shopper. (laughs) You are a parent. You are the, are you the primary household shopper? I guess so. I I guess I would say I I am. So since COVID hit, what is the craziest thing you bought online? I wish I could say I I bought crazy things. I think we, shopping has become like a treasure hunt. It's more like a game for us. So what it did was it reinforced, you asked if I was the primary shopper. I think we're a, you know, we all shop in the family and food shopping has been our sort of primary activity. And what's become really important, and it goes back to e-commerce, is the list. The list has become this almost like artifact that, you know, honestly, I can't think of the last time I made a shopping list other than online prior to COVID. The list is now in an important place in the kitchen and everybody gets to add to it and annotate it. And I actually took pictures of our list and I put them as part of a memento I made for the family, like a photo album of, I did a Shutterfly album of like our life in COVID. (laughs) And the list got its own photo because it became so important to us. What's on the list? What's off the list? What's So I would say it was more around like the behavior of shopping. I, I, I can't say that I've bought anything truly crazy um but it's it's this this um ritual of list making and it's become so important and i will say that some e-commerce sites make that really easy in grocery and some do not and you know the ability to annotate the list and share the list and have family uh contribute to the list is incredibly important in our household it's so interesting because i cannot remember a brief when I was working on CPG marketing, 
I can't remember a brief that didn't have, make sure we get the product on the shopping list. And I was like, do people even do that anymore? And and now you're right. It's become a ritual. It's like on refrigerator doors. It's on whiteboards at home. It's, it is the unifying element of many people that have more than one person in the household. When I worked at Martha Stewart years ago, to give you a sense of how long I've been thinking about the list, we invested in a company called ZipList that was a an online list making kind of app essentially that made list making really easy and shareable among the family and then um, would integrate with your local grocery or whatever. And I spent a lot of time then like studying how people make lists and the scratching and stuff. But in those days, it really was kind of a a throwaway thing. Um, Today, and again, my kids are older and they can contribute to a list. So it's not like, you know, I'm doing all the shopping for them and they have no choice. Um, but it's what, what's been interesting is whether or not brands make it on the list. That's been super interesting. So for the most part, for the most part, brand choice is happening in the moment of shopping because of availability. Mm-hmm. And the list is more so-called generic. But there are there are some brands that do make it on the list. And this goes back to power of algorithm, because if the retailer is going to push private label, it's really a warfare over brand loyalty. And we're going to move into the final question of the episode. Uh, I hope you had some time to think about it. Yeah. Gail, what is the bravest thing you've ever done? So I like to think that I have followed my passions and my interests. And um, I've I've really chosen jobs around true inherent kind of love for the um, brand or the thing I would be doing. So the bravest thing I ever did probably was say no to a job that I really, really wanted because, um, and it wasn't a negotiating ploy. I, I told the prospective employer what I was looking for in terms of overall compensation and, and um, what I needed. And they came back to me and I really, really wanted the job. And and they said, this is a non-negotiable offer. They made me an offer. And I I was so disappointed when it was verbally given to me. And I said, oh, well, can I think about it for a day? And I wanted this job desperately. I truly did. And I said, no, I said no. And I will tell you that it was really, really hard for me. And I had to get comfortable with the fact that no meant no, and that I wouldn't be able to work at this company I really wanted to work with. What was interesting about that was they came back to me and they made me a better offer. And it it truly was brave because literally they set it up. This is not a negotiation. We will not make a counter offer. This is it. And I, I took that at face value. I believed that to be true. And I made the decision to, to pass. And it was really hard for me. And I was really disappointed because I get very invested in the process of coming on board to a, a company. I have made a number of job changes in my career. I've worked places for many years. I mean, I worked at Condé Nast for 11 years, for example. But, you know, when you, you leave a job you love, that could be brave, but saying no to a job that you really want because the circumstances are not right for you. And I knew myself and I knew I would be disappointed if I accepted something that I didn't really believe was right. So I said no. I love that. And I also think it's an amazing lesson in negotiations and knowing your worth. 
So props to you. I was snapping my fingers in my head when you were talking. Well, Gail, thank you so much for your time. You're always a wealth of knowledge. Uh, there's so much happening in your category. For everyone who's listening, you need to watch what Kellogg's is doing. As someone who gets to partner with you, it's truly an omni-channel approach and you don't see it much elsewhere. So thank you again for your time. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Sarah. It's been great to, to talk with you today. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. And don't forget to share this link with a friend. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. Hi, I'm Jackie Cooper, Global Chief Brand Officer at Edelman and the host of Touch of True, a new podcast launching on the Adweek Podcast Network. My dad gave me this incredibly smart piece of advice, meet everyone once. As a result, I've met some of the most fascinating and inspiring people on the planet. Now on Touch of Truth, we're coming center stage and sharing the mic to experience stories of truth, insights and visions for the future that will challenge your way of thinking. Touch of Truth is available wherever you listen to podcast. New episodes come out every Tuesday. I do hope to see you there.